Indecision in many circumstances is certainly understandable. Oftentimes there are a number of good options in the choices that we can make, such as what house to buy, what car to buy, what college to attend, or things as simple as what should I put on this morning. It is the number of good options that makes life choices so difficult. However, there should be no indecision in our worship for God, for there is only one good choice. There really is no viable option. There is only one true and living God, so he and he alone is to be worshipped. This morning, we focus our attention on the worship of the true and living God, The Israelites were having a difficult time making up their mind between worshiping Baal or worshiping Jehovah. They had become divided in their allegiances and syncretistic in their worship, that is, combining the elements of worshiping Baal right alongside with worshiping God. They wanted to have Jehovah and eat their Baal, as it were. And so we find in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, that Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long are you going to limp between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They were not ready to make a declaration. They were not ready to announce any particular allegiance at that point. So Elijah puts forth a contest in order to ascertain who is the true and living God. What does the contest reveal? What do we want to learn from it? Well, we learn that there is only one true and living God, and furthermore, we are to learn what that God is like. For our understanding of God is certainly going to affect our worship, as we will see. So a contest is undertaken. First, the rules of the contest are put forth. They are as follows. Two sacrifices will be prepared, one for Baal, one for Jehovah. 1 Kings 18, 22, and 23. Then Elijah said to the people, I even only I am left, the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let Two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood. However, the prophets were not to put any fire to the burnt offering, verse 23. But put no fire on it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. The prophets of Baal were to pray to Baal, and Elijah would pray to Jehovah, verse 24. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers the prayer by sending fire to consume the sacrifice will be declared the true and living God, verse 24. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Well, the people approve and accept the contest. The end of verse 24. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. It's a good idea. We like it. 
And so the contest begins in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. As we work through this text, we're going to look at two very important overarching ideas that must be kept in mind. So it basically falls into two parts. The first idea is that Jehovah is the true and living God who hears and answers prayer. Jehovah is the true and living God who hears and answers prayer. But we find in this context, the way that we view God will affect the way that we worship God. In this instance, we see that the manner in which we conceive of God is going to affect even the way in which we pray to God. How we view God will affect the manner of our prayers. In this context, we will see the contrast in the manner in which the false prophets of Baal pray and the way in which Elijah prays to Jehovah. We see that they pray quite differently. For there is a way in which God's people pray that is to be different from the way in which pagans pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, God's word tells us that we are not to pray like the pagans pray. So we want to focus on these distinctives, these differences, the contrast in the way in which the false prophets of Baal pray and the way in which Elijah prays. So what are those differences? First, the difference in the view of numbers in praying to God. Having more people pray will not make prayers more effectual. Let me say that again. Having more people pray will not make prayers more effectual. There will be many prophets who are praying to Baal. That's the emphasis in verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even, I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Verse 24, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Again, the contrast, the 450 with the individual Elijah. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first. Then he says this, for you are many, for you are many. So we see that there's going to be a stark contrast between 450 who are praying to Baal and just one person who is praying to Jehovah. Elijah was wrong in thinking that he was the only true prophet left. We have talked about that a few times in our last couple of weeks. But he was correct for whatever reason, Elijah is the only prophet of the Lord that is participating in this contest. There is no other prophet who speaks or prays or acts at this particular juncture. The word of God brings our attention to the fact that Elijah is greatly outnumbered by the prophets of Baal. The fact that Elijah is outnumbered by those who are praying does not put Elijah at a disadvantage. For the significance of the answer to prayer is found in the God 
not in the one who prays. And so we learn some important truths. Let me just say it is not wrong to ask others to pray for us and for our concerns, of course. It's valuable to ask others to be praying. But if we're not careful, we can easily fall prey to believing that the power in prayer rests in the number of people who are praying. If we're not careful, we can enter into kind of a, a pagan understanding of God that, like a petition, the more people you have that, that uh, sign their name to the petition, the more likely the, prayer, the petition is going to be granted. We can develop that understanding of God. The more people I have praying, the more likely it is that God is going to hear and answer our prayers. Well, we find out that prayer is supposed to be according to the will of God. And God does not have to be coerced into prayer, but rather simply be supplicated on the basis of his word and his character. We get to the New Testament and we find this simple statement about this particular portion of scripture. And it says, Elijah was a man subject unto like passions as we are. And he prayed. He was a man. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. It doesn't say righteous people. It doesn't say a righteous crowd. But one person who is exercising faith and trust in God will find their prayers to be effectual. You can have confidence this morning in your individual prayers, in your individual coming to God and supplicating God based on your faith in him and him alone. The second difference is how the prayers are to be viewed with regard to their length. The pagans thought that, that there was a greater likelihood of their prayers being answered simply by praying longer. 1 Kings 18, 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it. Now these words, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So all morning they are praying, saying, O Baal, answer us. And then if you look at verse 29, as midday passed, there's a bit of a break at midday, and Elijah's mocking them, but after that break is over, it tells us in verse 29, they raved on until the time of the evening oblation. So they're praying all morning until noon. There's a slight break, and then praying all afternoon until they get to the evening oblation. That stands in stark contrast to Elijah. Elijah's prayer is short and to the point, just before the evening offering is made. He's not praying all morning and all afternoon. There are not two different prayer groups going on. And the prophets of Baal are over here praying and Elijah's over here praying. No, there are prophets of Baal praying, and Elijah is watching, and eventually starts making fun of them. And he's just standing by, observing. And it isn't until it's 
time to offer the sacrifice that he begins to pray. For notice verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's the prayer. That's how long it took. That's what he did. Again, Matthew 6, 7, and when you pray, do not heap up simply phrases as the pagan do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that prayers are more effectual based on the amount of time or length that you are spending in prayer. That, again, is not what makes prayer effectual. It is the person of God, not the manner in which we pray. The third difference between the way that the prophets of Baal pray and Elijah prays is that the pagans have a false view as to how God hears and answers prayer, and particularly in the aspect of hearing prayer. Elijah begins to make fun of the prophets as the prophets offer their prayers to Baal. He tells them, as they are not receiving any answer, to pray louder, to pray louder. Notice verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud! Cry aloud! The problem is, Baal doesn't hear you. Speak up! Raise your voice! And then he gives reasons as to why Baal isn't hearing them. All right? He says, if Baal's a true God, why doesn't he hear you when you pray? So he gives some reasons as to perhaps why Baal isn't hearing the prayers of the Israelites. Verse 27. Perhaps Baal does not hear because he's busy with other things. Baal's preoccupied. Notice verse 27. Cry aloud, for he is a god. Here's the first one. Either he's musing. He's musing. He's, he's contemplating. He's thinking. He's got other things on his mind. Now, I am a one-track-minded individual. I have an incredible sense of concentration. You can blow up a bomb around me, it seems, and uh, I won't pay attention. You just, my mind is somewhere else. My wife many times has to grab me and shake me if she's talking to me and realizes I'm not listening, all right, because that's just my limitation. Maybe he's preoccupied, and you've got to get his attention. The true God, conversely, is always thinking about us. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! 
If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. God's thoughts of us are more than the sands of the sea. He's constantly thinking of us. God is aware of all things. Nothing escapes his notice. We get to Matthew chapter 10 and says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knew when every single hair of mine fell out. He was aware of it. He even oversaw it. What a different view of a God. One who doesn't have the ability to concentrate on more than one thing at a time and a God who knows all things and watches over all peoples. Thirdly, perhaps Baal does not hear because he's going to the bathroom. Verse 27. Or he is relieving himself. Uh, in uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, he says this, in paganism, gods and goddesses engaged in the whole gamut of activities we call human. Elijah adopts that perspective and he ridicules it, he mocks it, he makes fun of it. He's saying, your concept of a god has the same limits as a human being does. So maybe your god's simply going to the bathroom. Now, it's intended to be offensive. It's intended to make them upset. It's an absurd thought. But you see, that is so different from our understanding of who God is and how God acts. Thirdly, perhaps Baal does not hear because he's on a trip. He's put a sign on the heavenly throne saying, gone fishing, and uh, I'll be back next week. All right, so, so come next week, and maybe you can have an audience with me. Notice verse 27. He's on a journey. He's on a journey. The scripture speaks to all of these misconceptions, all of the manners in which we are to think of God. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Very present. A, a strange way of saying, he's here. He's very here. God is never vacant. God never takes a vacation. God never goes away from us. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. There is never a time or place in which God is indifferent to or does not hear our prayers. Fourth, perhaps Baal does not hear 
because he's sound asleep. And you have to wake him up. Notice verse 27, last statement. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Again, I marvel that the scripture speaks to every one of these to overcome our misconceptions that are common when people don't think biblically or accurately. Psalm 121.3 says, He, God, will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You don't have to wake God up. You don't have to worry at 2 o'clock in the morning if God is awake and God is listening and God is ready to hear your prayer. You don't have to set God an alarm clock that says, God, I, I want to meet with you at 4 this morning. I hope that's not too early for you. That's not who our God is. Our God knows none of those limitations. Here's a biggie. Perhaps Baal does not hear you because you have not made enough personal sacrifice. Perhaps Baal doesn't hear you because you have not made enough personal sacrifice. Verse 28. And they cried out and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They're thinking that they have to somehow mutilate their bodies if God is going to hear them. And that may sound kind of absurd to us, but down through the ages, in Christianity even, that kind of thinking has found its way into people's understanding of prayer, especially in the medieval period of time. When... Uh, Flagellation was, was very common. That is the manner of whipping yourself or beating yourself, uh, going without rest, sleeping on uh, boards and, or, and other than sleeping on a mattress. Anything to make life miserable would somehow enhance and would advance the prayer life of people. Now, we're beyond that. Uh, I hope we are. I hope you're not going home and beating yourself in order for God to hear your prayers. But I tell you, there's always vestiges. There, there are always little hangovers that are very tough for God's people to resist. For pagan worship always has a certain tug at us, for it is the way that we would worship if we put God's word aside. It is the way that we would worship if we were conjuring up the way in which people should approach and expect God to hear and answer their prayers. We are trying to make ourselves acceptable and worthy in some way, earning God's blessing and his prayer upon us. And even one biblical way that is often misused is the concept of fasting. Even fasting does not boost the power 
of our prayers. And there are some people's view that because they fast, well, that means God is more likely to hear and answer their prayer than if they don't fast. In Isaiah chapter 58, the Israelites ask a question of God. And the question that they ask of God is this. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppose all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like this, excuse me, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Fasting like yours on this day will not make your voice be heard on high. It's not just a matter of denying ourselves, and therefore God is going to hear and answer our prayer. It's about faith. It's about trusting in God's grace and goodness and mercy and believing in his character and his holiness. It is calling upon God with a sense of unworthiness, a sense of undeservedness, a sense of need, as opposed to trying to bring a resume before God in which he says, oh, okay, you deserve it now, you've earned it. Bless you, my child, I will answer your prayer. Then there is the contrast in the pagan's view of God's limitations in answering prayers contrasted with a true and living God who is not limited by circumstances. 1 Kings 18, 30 and following. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been knocked down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and put cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the word ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. He was making it difficult for God. Not only was he believing that God was able to send fire from heaven, but he believed that he could soak, re-soak, and soak again this altar, and God would still be able to light the fire and consume the offering. The people of God know that God says, nothing is too hard for me. Ephesians 3.20 He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So our concept of God will really affect the way in which we approach prayer and enter into it. The second overarching idea is that God is a gracious God in hearing and answering our prayers. God's grace is seen throughout this narrative. It's important that they not only know that there's a God, but they know what that God is like. 
And what this narrative reveals is that God is a God of grace. First, God is gracious in the provision of this, con- contra- uh, this contest. Notice verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day three things, that you're God in Israel. Second, that I am your servant. And now I want to focus on the third, and that I have done all these things at your word. Everything that Elijah says and done is commanded by God. This is not Elijah's novel idea. This is that Elijah wakes up one day and says, you know what, I, I, I think it'd be a great thing if, if we had a contest to demonstrate who God is. I, I think that's a pretty good idea. Now let me think, how, how can, what can I do? What, what kind of contest? Man, I don't know. See what could be raised? Uh, let the sun go backwards? Uh, maybe, maybe we'll call down fire from heaven. This wasn't his idea. This was God's idea. And it's pretty remarkable that this is God's idea. For God had said to the nation of Israel, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. God had told his people that they were forbidden to ask God to prove himself that he exists or that he's powerful, that he's good or whatever. They, they weren't to put him to a test. They were simply to trust his word. But God in his goodness provides a test for them. This is God's grace. And what I want to point out to you is this is God's grace in an abundant manner and way. For remember that Elijah has been sent to Ahab, who's the king of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is the kingdom that separated itself from God. But notice a very simple thing in verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob. This altar that was to represent the tribes isn't just built with two stones or built with 10 stones. The southern kingdom is two. The northern kingdom is 10. But the altar is built with 12. For in God's grace... He had not forsaken them. In God's grace, he had not abandoned them. In God's grace, he had not withheld the opportunity for them to repent and to come into a relationship with him. This is grace. Secondly, God is gracious in his continued provision as illustrated in the water that is poured on the sacrifice. There is more going on here than just simply drowning this sacrifice so that it's harder to start a fire. I think that's part of it, but it's not the whole deal. Remember, there's a great drought in the land. 
the brook Cherith had dried up. Ahab and Obadiah had been out looking for a place where there were springs, where, where there was a place of green pasture. Everything was dried up. Everything was in need of water. Ahab and Obadiah went to the usual places looking for it and could not find it. This was a precious and rare commodity that they're going to take and just dump out on the, on the altar to let it run on the ground, okay? You can almost imagine people's gasp. Oh, here's this huge crowd. He's taking our water. And he's pouring on this sacrifice. What's he doing? Well, 1 Kings 18.1 says, Go sell yourself to Ahab, and I will say rain on the earth. As soon as this is over, it's going to rain. As soon as this is over, there's going to be plenty of water. But they don't know that, and they don't understand But this is Elijah's faith at work and trusting in the promise and word of God. This was also an important part of the element of the sacrifice itself. It is akin to David, if you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 23, when David was thirsty and he said that he was thirsty and then his mighty men broke through and went and got him water and brought it back and he realizes that they had done this at the risk of their life and David doesn't drink it. Instead, he pours it out on the ground as an offering to God. This is Elijah pouring out this precious water unto the living and true God. Next, God is gracious in turning his people back to him. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are Lord our God and that you have turned their hearts back. You have turned their hearts back. He is bringing them to repentance. He is doing all of this. From beginning to end, God is bringing them to repentance. And we always need to remember God's grace for he is the one who brings us to repentance. He is the one who brings conviction. He is the one who shows us our sin. He is the one who reveals himself to us. He is the one who teaches us our grace. He is the one who provides the sacrifice in order to make us acceptable to God. It's all about God. It's all about God. For he is the living and true and gracious God. God is gracious in answering Elijah's prayer. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench, showing that God had accepted this sacrifice. God is gracious in providing and accepting the sacrifice in his faithfulness to his people, even when his people are unfaithful to him. For notice it says, verse 18, then the fire of the Lord fell. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. There's a lot of significance in fire in relationship with God in the Old Testament. 
The fire was a means of God revealing himself to his people. It was a, an association with God's care as well as God's judgment. Fire was a distinctive mark of the true and living God. Philip Ryken in his commentary says this, and I quote, The fire that came down from heaven proved the goodness of the Lord God of Israel. The Lord, the God of Elijah, is a burning and consuming fire. He is the God who sent fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, who led the children of Israel with a fiery pillar by night, who consumed the burnt offering on Aaron's altar, who destroyed Nadab and Abihu with flames when they offered unauthorized fire, and who sent fire from heaven when Solomon dedicated the temple. God, on three occasions, sent fire in association with progression and worship. This is the God of fire. This is a God of their history. This is a God who has met with them in the past. God who consumed the sacrifice is gracious in not consuming the people. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God spared the people because he accepted the sacrifice. That is always the means by which God spares his people. A means of the sacrifice. For us, it's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on Calvary's tree so that we would experience peace with God and never know his judgment or condemnation. God indeed is a gracious God in bringing his people to repentance, for notice verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They humbled themselves. They fell on their faces. They did not believe themselves worthy to look up unto God. <laughs> they are not offering themselves righteous or holy. They are not cutting themselves. They are not beating themselves. They are not praying all day. They are on their face. And they say, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he's God. And in that he is worshipped. And that he is praised. And in that, the people of God experience repentance and forgiveness. So what are the lessons? Well, first, may we have no hesitancy in our allegiance to God. When Elijah had first spoken to the people, he said, if Baal be Baal, then worship him. If Jehovah be God, then worship him. But the people answered him, not a word. Not a word. May we never be silent in our commitment or relationship to God. May we always be willing to own him as our God. May we always be privileged in our mind of having the opportunity to worship and to serve him. Secondly, may we loudly and clearly proclaim that the Lord is God. 
We live in a day and age where people are questioning the existence of God, questioning the character of God, questioning the goodness of God, questioning, questioning, questioning. And may our response to all the questions be, the Lord, he is God. Jehovah is God. And the God is the God of the Bible, without the limitations that mankind associates. The God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of goodness. The Lord, he is God. And he's the only source of that grace. He's the only source of that forgiveness. He's the only source of that goodness. He's the only source of provision. May we recognize who it is, the God that we serve. And in our worship of God, may our knowledge of God inform our worship. May it conform to the word of God. May we not pray like pagans. But may we pray like people who come to the throne of God's grace. May we pray like people who believe in a God who hears and who answers prayer. Who doesn't have to be coerced or manipulated. As though God doesn't want to grant his mercy and goodness to us. Like we have to draw it out of him. We have to beg him for it. No, God is rich in grace. We don't have to beg. For he is the one who commands us to come. Casting all your care upon him. Why? He cares for you. He cares for you. That's the concept. That's the character that we need to understand. God is not aloof. God is not afar off. God is not estranged from us if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So may we approach him in faith, realizing how different God is from the way that pagans imagine God to be. May we repent of anything that smacks of man-made worship and is not consistent with the true worship of God. May we not borrow from the elements of society and culture, but may our worship be defined and practiced by the word of God. May God truly be honored and glorified in our worship of him. And may we begin by thanking and praising God for his goodness and grace in hearing us, in answering us, in meeting our needs. For you see, it goes all the way back before the drought. God was meeting the needs of his people, but they failed to see it. So God sent a drought, but they still failed to see it. And so God, in his goodness, said, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. And I submit that though we didn't deserve it, many of us can attest to the ways in which God has proved his faithfulness to us. Haven't we seen it? Haven't you seen the answer to prayer? Haven't you seen God's providence in your life? Haven't you seen the goodness in his bringing you to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? May God be praised. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that you are the true and living God. I pray that that knowledge would indeed inform our worship and that our worship would be in spirit and in truth, that we would worship you in a manner of which you are worthy, that we would acknowledge your grace, that we would not try to make ourselves somehow effectual, but rather see that the effectualness lies not in us but in you. May we be a people that simply trust in your goodness to us. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you that through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, we have peace with God, and there is nothing that we have to do to earn or deserve heaven. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.